what a blessing that is to have you play. Thank you for being part of that blessing to us. Well, good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. You put a smile on your face. Uh, coffee IVs are available in the foyer uh, to perk you up. It's good to be with you today. And uh, of course, entering into my favorite time of year, uh, white-tailed deer season. You thought I was going to say Thanksgiving or Christmas. It is that as well, but uh, it's a great time to uh, be alive. For those who are part of our children's church up through grade six, you can be dismissed at this time to... Um, your age-appropriate class. Thank you, teachers, for serving there. If you are a guest here today, let me encourage you, uh, during the course of time that we are meeting together, right in front of you, uh, in the chair in front of you, you'll find a piece of paper that looks like this. It says, Berean Baptist Together on the Journey Card. I'd love for you to take time to fill that out. Let us know that you were here today, that we can minister to you, how we can minister to you, how the Lord uh, spoke to you in the service uh, and on the back is the places where you can get involved and you can indicate, would you like more information or you'd like to be involved in something? We'd love to see you plugged in, and that'd be great to have you part of those who are laboring together for the kingdom. Uh, as you know, if you've been with us for a little while, you know that we are in uh, a study, uh, early in a study of the books of First and Second Corinthians, so you can turn there if you'd like your copy of God's Word. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. Uh, you can find that in front of you, uh, in the, one of the chairs in front of you, and you can read along in that uh, translation, or just reading the one that you brought, and I'll give you some verse cues, and we'll stay together. Uh, we've labeled this section of 1 Corinthians, God's plan for a healthy church, in particular, God's wisdom on display, and this is really unity part three. Paul is dealing with uh, things to help the church be healthy. The first thing he deals with is the unity that Lord desires, and so he's going to deal with some issues that deal with uh, disunity and disharmony, and, and so in particular, there's going to be some illustrations here that I think you'll find very rich. And once again, as we work through this section and some of those that will follow, there are more applications than we have time to make. Uh, so let me encourage you to continue to read in the Word of God. If you have questions, if we touch on something you wished we would have spent more time on, uh, make sure you continue to read. You have the same uh, text and the same tutor that I have, and you can come to conclusions. And if you still have some questions, please feel free to submit those to me by email. We will be having a Q&A time partway through the study so we can address some things perhaps that we skipped over or questions you may have, all right? To save our time, look at 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to pick up in verse 18, if you would, and we're going to read all the way through verse 31. So look there. Uh, my, my translation starts, for the word. So right there, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Look at verse 22. Uh, for indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but verse 23, we preach Christ crucified a Jew, to Jews a stumbling block and Greeks and, and the Gentiles foolishness. Verse 24. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Verse 28, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. Verse 30, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, verse 31, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's stop right there. We are following up, of course, our study last week at the heels of Paul's admonishing some of the church in Corinth for allowing themselves to be pulled into division openly voicing differing viewpoints and preferences. We could really label that first section uh, splits in the church because that's really what it describes. Now, hanging on to an unsubmissive spirit, all the things that we talked about. And we saw from his example that it really didn't matter what the differences were, and he didn't even really address them at all. 
And he used himself as an example. He didn't pull anybody else in that was named. He just uses himself so nobody will say, oh, see, you're attacking Apollos, or see, you're, you're on, the, on the opposite side of Peter. He just said, because there are differences and you're handling them this way, you show yourself to be carnal. And he uses the word that we saw last time, schismata, and that really is uh, the jumping point for us. That's what's gone on in the church. It indicates a rent or broken nature of the church there in Corinth in this state. And he reminded them that Christ is not divided. And he commanded them to be, we saw in verse 10, be made complete. Look back there if you would, just in verse 10. Uh, that's from the verb kartartizo, very important verb. It's fitted for good use, completely mended, uh, used to describe the mending of nets, the setting of bones, the mending of sails, something that was torn, uh, putting something back together that was uh, destroyed. It's in perfect passive. And so, so the subject is being acted on with a completed action is the future desire. And so Paul said that they need to vocalize the same thing. That's external. They need to be of the same opinion, he says. That's internal. And that sanctification process that we saw brings, uh, uh, begins at salvation, and it is active in the believer. And the Holy Spirit desires to bring the church to this completeness in the lives of individuals. And so Paul says, listen, this is what you're looking to do. And on the other side, of course, incompleteness not fitted for good use, includes vocalizing complaints, gossiping, backbiting, holding opposite opinions, contrary attitudes, all the things that Paul said are currently going on in the church. That's not uh, then bringing yourself to be complete, being, being made complete by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. So completeness then has symptoms. And we see it in the next part of verse 10. It says, in the same mind. So be in the same mind. See that? Uh, that mind there denotes thoughts, feelings, purposes, desires, and then a, a word that's connected to it in the same judgment, same root word. And here it just has to do with a mode of thinking and judging of thoughts, feelings, and purposes, and desires. And so, after that, in verse 10, it goes through then the divisions. And the topic of the division, uh, the point is not uh, what the divisions were. The point is that they were having divisions. That was the issue. And that's the real problem, that they were divided. And he reminds them of what they've forgotten, which is the real reason for their existence. Now skip to verse 17, because we won't go through all this again. And remember, beloved, as we go through this, uh, all the way through the end of chapter 4, he's going to talk about this topic. So as a pastor, I'm not going to go back uh, to chapter 1, uh, verses like 3 through 9, every time we do this. Keep in mind, he's dealing with unity, wants the church to be healthy in unity, and the problem is there are divisions. So everything he talks about is going to be related to that and illustrate the problem and the solution, okay? So that's where we're going today, and I'm not going to go back through all of those divisions and all of that, okay? Now look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. This is how Paul responds, okay? Um, and he, re he reminds them he didn't baptize any of them except, you know, Crispus and, you know, Stephanus, the household of Stephanus, perhaps. And uh, he couldn't remember any other ones, and it didn't matter because that wasn't the point, and that wasn't where Christ sent him. And so we saw, and that really is the result of unity. Philippians 1.27, we saw standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together, Paul says to the Philippians, for the faith of the gospel. The essential thing, he says, is to build the church, not what your opinion may be and whether uh, you think you're right or wrong or whatever, somebody else is wrong. Not make followers of man, that's what he says. Not in cleverness of speech, Paul says. So his main desire was not that people would like uh, how he spoke and, and, and be a Paul follower. That wasn't his main desire. His main desire wasn't that people like him or whether or not they like how he baptized or how he ran the church as compared to how Apollos ran the church as compared to how Peter perhaps ran the church in Jerusalem and all the Jews who came there to worship and what they were bringing in. He says that's not the issue. Uh, the essential thing is the example to the church at Corinth that they should be a church uh, at work, serving the Lord, uh, doing his will, not creating or promoting dissension. Uh, the imperative is to honor him, preach his truth, walk in the spirit, and not in fleshliness, see? And as that goes on, see, uh, it will put the power into ministry. And as that goes on, uh, people will see a blessed unity that will magnify the Lord and draw to him those people who are coming to Christ. And that's, he said, the priority. That's the priority. Now, verse 18 actually picks up on that essential thing, okay? And he's going to kind of compound on that more and more, and we're going to see this is very rich. And, uh, and all, the, you know, all these verses, all these thoughts, all, all the way through in the verse, or chapter 4, these all go back to that little section we read, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 2 through uh, 10 or 9, okay? Now, this particular section, I think, is one of the greatest sections in Scripture because it gives a contrast, now mark this, gives a contrast between the foolishness of men, which they think is wisdom, and the wisdom of God, which men think are, is foolishness. And it contrasts in human wisdom and divine wisdom. 
And perhaps you may think, you know, how does that have to do with divisions, okay? And here's how it has to do with divisions, all right? This makes the connection. You'll see the transition verses in just a minute, and you'll understand this perfectly, all right? It appears that Paul's admonition ultimately has to do with boasting, okay? It ultimately has to do with boasting. And that is uh, what they've been doing, boasting of one teacher or another. They're, uh, you know, they follow Peter or they follow Apollo, so they follow Paul. And then you even had this group that said, and I follow Christ, and I told you last week, that group was probably right. The problem was, though, that they probably had in their mind uh, that, you know, I follow Christ and I don't need a teacher, all right? I don't need a church. I don't need to follow anybody else. I don't need to come under authority of an elder. I don't need him to do any of that. Or perhaps it was just that I follow Christ, and then they got caught up into the division and all the arguments, okay? So either way, Paul doesn't mention them again, but they were probably right. But the bottom line is this. It has to do with disagreements, uh, and that made it bad, okay? And the fact that they were divided made it worse, Okay, the fact that they had divisions and then they uh, magnified those divisions, Paul says that's just wrong. Okay, but the Corinthians were a proud group. Factions all thought they were right and they weren't submitting to one another and they had this high estimation of their own rightness and always in division in, tr in the church. There's always that. Uh, whoever, whatever part of it that you have, you have a very high estimation of your own rightness. And so Paul takes some time. They can push the reset button, really. And Paul shows them what God thinks about man's wisdom in general. Now, he's going to take in a lot of real estate when he talks about man's wisdom. But ultimately, remember, it has to do with the factions and promoting yourself and what you think is important above the main thing, which is the building of the kingdom. Okay? That's how it's connected. So Paul calls them to understand that they're united in Christ and what they should know then centers around the cross. In application, really focus on the gospel, not what you think you know. All right? Pulls the church back in the right direction. Now, look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me, Paul says, to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. That cleverness is the noun sophia, which really has to do with human wisdom or worldly wisdom. Uh, so he sets up what he's going to say next. He sets up human wisdom against the cross. That's the issue. So as Paul looks at the church, he knows that everyone has an opinion, everyone thinks they know, so he's going to set that kind of carnal thinking on its ear for a few minutes. Okay. So Paul says... I came to preach the gospel, not Sophia Logo, not word wisdom, okay? I came to preach the gospel, not human wisdom, not human knowledge, not based in what I know or how I present it or whatever, okay? So Paul's saying to the Corinthians, the gospel, the revelation of God is all that's necessary. The focus that you need to have then is right here. And so Paul, with verse 17, really launches into a really lengthy contrast between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of men. Now look at verse 18, if you would. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Let's stop right there. Notice the first half of the verse. It has to do, uh, that has so much application to the modern church, of course. The Lord gives us insight into the thoughts of the world. And once again, we could just go off just there and spend all of our time just there. But I think it's important to keep continuity of Paul's thoughts. So that's what we're going to do, okay? And kind of really focus on the context here. Now that's those who are without God, okay? That's uh, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Those who are perishing are those without God, those who are dying in their sin, those who are on their way to spend an eternity in hell, those who don't acknowledge God, uh, for whom God, God's heart is grieved and our heart is grieved, right, beloved? I mean, we're both grieved about that, and we're grieved because our Father in heaven is grieved. Now, to them, the preaching of the cross, as Paul says, is foolishness. That's moria. That's where we get our word moron, okay? So Paul says, here's where my mandate lies. Uh, but here's the truth. The world has elevated its own opinions so that the cross of Christ, the gospel, looks foolish and stupid. Paul says, my main emphasis is the cross. But the world has elevated the, cross, the teaching of the cross to stupidity. Okay? Its own, it's elevated its own opinions above the cross and just said that the cross is stupid and uh, it's foolish and uh, that is not where we want to go. So they put such weight then on their own thinking then to come along and say, you know, as you do, as you witness, I want to give you a simple message. God in human flesh died on the cross, paid the penalty for your sin. By faith in that act and his resurrection, you can be saved and your eternal destiny is secured in heaven forever. To say that very simple presentation of the gospel, they hear that and then they say, how ridiculous, right? How could that, how could it be that the death of one man on one hill and one piece of wood on one moment in history be the determining factor of the destiny for everyone who ever believed? How stupid is that? How foolish is that to believe that? That's what Paul says. That's the world's opinion. And the lesson is really clear to the church. If they've elevated their own preferences, their own opinions, their own mandate of the gospel, uh, above the gospel, okay, realize 
It falls into the same category. The message of the cross is the thing. Above all things, no factions should exist. Now, look at the last part of verse 18. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Here's the contrast for the wise believer. Human wisdom is set against the cross, but true believers know that this is where the power is. This is the main thing. That's what he said in Romans 1, wasn't it? Romans 1, 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? Power of God, there you go, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. I'm not ashamed. Paul says, even though the world thinks I'm stupid, even though the people think I'm uneducated, I'm still not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It may be moronic to them, but it's the power of God to them who believe. So the word of the cross, which looks like foolishness to men, is really the power of God. And man, because of the elevation of human ego, because he wants his own way, uh, have uh, his own preferences, can't stoop down to something as simple as that. But Paul says that's where the power is. That's the most important thing. Okay. Now, if you remember, when Paul went to Corinth, uh, he went about preaching the gospel. People came to faith. The church was established. If, in 1 Corinthians 2.1, we're going to get to this next, I, hopefully next time. Uh, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2.1, Look, when I arrived at Corinth, he says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, same wording we saw in chapter 1, verse 18, okay? Proclaiming to you the testimony of God, verse 2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the message of the gospel, okay? Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And we saw that, didn't we, in Acts 18. We saw Paul was afraid, and we saw he talked about being afraid there. And verse 4, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Now, you kept it simple, Paul, to what end? Verse 5, so that your faith would not rest on, wisdom of men, on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Verse 6, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. Listen, this is very important. We do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak, mark this, God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. So those who are mature understand what? That they have their own faction, their own opinion, their own belief, and they're going to speak it out loud if they want to and come to an opposite conclusion in their own mind. No. Those who are mature understand that the main thing is what? God's wisdom in a mystery Hidden wisdom of God predestined before the ages to our glory, otherwise known as the gospel. Otherwise known as the gospel. Those are the things that those who are mature focus on. In other words, Paul says, when I came to you, there was already enough opinions flying around, already enough preferences in the mix. And so he gives them something very simple, not complex, something very historical, something very concrete and objective, not subjective, not preferential. He gave them the cross. And he kept it up, and he kept it up and, uh, in, in Corinth for at least 18 months. So that's how long he stayed there, and that was his main message. And churches get away from that, beloved, and they get caught up in their own thing, and they get off target. But it's really, he said, pretty simple. Now, it's always the cross, the simplicity of the message. And as an illustration, remember Matthew 16, 21? From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now, this is his disciples, okay? These guys have been with him for a little while now. So Jesus tells them the gospel. That's the gospel, right? That he's going to go to his death and he's at the hands of sinful men. He's going to rise again and conquer sin. That's the gospel. I'm going to die. Remember how Peter reacted to that? Verse 22, Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him and saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Really? One, one thing Revelation doesn't need is Peter's opinion about all of that, right? But you see, Peter's philosophy was at variance with the truth, wasn't it? But he turned and aside and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. And that's quite a rebuke, considering it's on the heels of the Lord speaking very highly of Peter. So they go on into the garden, and Peter still doesn't learn it yet, okay? The soldiers come to capture Christ in John 18. Peter takes his sword and he just starts swinging, doesn't he? And Jesus said, will you put that thing away? Haven't you gotten the message yet? It's the gospel. It's the cross. It's the resurrection. It's the main message. And finally, after the cross, he understood, didn't he? And in Acts 3, Peter's healing the people. And, uh, and they think that he did it unto himself, that he had power to heal. And so Peter's teaching in Acts 3, 18 through 19. They're going to worship him and all of that. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of the prophets, Peter speaking now, that his Christ would suffer has thus been fulfilled. Therefore, 
Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And now he sounds like an expert, doesn't he? He goes, <laughs> he goes from saying the opposite of the simple message of the cross, giving his own opinion, and now in Acts 3, he sounds like an expert. And later, 1 Peter 2.24, here's what he says. He's really refined it now, okay? And he himself bore our sins on his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. So Peter learned that his own opinions meant nothing. It was only the cross. But at the beginning, his philosophy really is at odds with the cross and he just had his own opinion and doing his own thing and he couldn't see it. He couldn't understand it. So the contrast then is established, and you can kind of see this movement that Paul's making. Verses 17 and 18. Read them together with me. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 1, 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So the cross is the power of God to salvation. And Paul said, you know, God didn't send me to baptize, I didn't call you together to have divisions and preferences and make issues of things. And I'm not going to get caught up in all of that, Paul says. Uh, you guys are saints, and so the word of the cross is not foolishness to you. So make it pre preeminent. It's the power of God. See? Now with that instruction, then in that context, Paul will give some reasons why the church should steer clear of all the divisions and, uh, that divert the energies away from the power of the cross. They are intended, of course, to be illustrations of the wisdom of God as superior to man's wisdom. But once again, and once again, it's going to have a number of applications here, and we won't be able to touch on them all, but they're all based on God's desire for the church to be healthy and are dealing with issues of unity inside the church and disunity. Now let's look at verse 19. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, Paul's going to start in the Old Testament, very typical of Paul. Okay, so Paul begins by quoting the Old Testament, and the first reason uh, that Paul says to avoid faction and division is that worldly wisdom that promotes all faction and all division is going to be swept away by God. Okay? Worldly wisdom, and that promotes all division, all faction, at whatever level it is, is going to be swept away by God. That's the first and very, most of, very important reason. Okay? Now, Paul's quoting Isaiah 29, 14. Now, let's look at it real quick, and I'll put it on the screen. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, so speaking of Israel, wondrously, marvelously, and, and marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. That's an, that's an important verse, and in its context, it goes on to say, you know, things done in secret will be revealed, and the Lord will expose all of that. Whatever you said, you know, by yourself, the Lord's going to expose it. All of that, whatever you said to someone else, that's going to be exposed. Now, that can have an immediate fulfillment, and, and it does. So here's Isaiah. Uh, God makes it clear that in spite of what Judah's people might say, uh, they're not to make any pacts with, with any other nation to deliver them from Assyria, particularly Egypt. Don't do that. I'm going to deliver you. Don't, don't rest in your own wisdom. Don't rest in your own power. Whatever it is, uh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to set aside what you think you should do, and I'm going to give you my wisdom. And it can have really an ultimate fulfillment, of course, in the tribulation period, uh, as we studied in the book of Revelation. The, the disintegration of all a man's wisdom is going to be there, uh, and it has even more than just a future fulfillment. There's clearly a general application in these statements. And, and that's, there's coming a day when all the philosophers of men will be swept away, right? All the ideas, all the things contrary to the cross, all the things that took, them away, uh, took us away from the cross. Christ will reign as king of kings, and all man's wisdom will be reduced to ashes, and God's going to bring his people into focus, and all of their plans will be set aside, and he's going to accomplish all of his promises to them. So there's a number of applications there, Okay. So in Isaiah, God makes it clear that he doesn't need any of the wisdom of Israel. And that's the point. And now you can go back to 1 Corinthians 1.19. Paul says, look, you know the passage in Isaiah? God never needed human wisdom. God never needed human understanding, even way back then. Okay? And even human understanding and human wisdom that seemed spiritual concerning Israel and what they thought they should probably do. He didn't need it. Proverbs 14, 12 phrases it like this. There is a way which seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. As this applies, of course, to the unredeemed, there are always people who want to give their opinion. And as you think about it, and as you witness, you're going to bump into people who are going to say, well, you know, I think, I think this about religion, or I think that about religion, or whatever. And I was, I was reminded as I was studying this earlier this week that I did a, a funeral about a year ago. And the family was, were not believers. And 
Uh, the way I got in contact with the family was that uh, he is the manager of a business here locally in Lynchburg, and a couple of different times I gave him the gospel, and he did not respond to the gospel, at least in my presence, but when he lost his dad, uh, he remembered me somehow and asked the funeral director from what he remembered about me to find me, and he did, and asked if I would do the funeral. And so it was just the mom, the son was a single guy, a single a child, and the mom were, were the surviving relatives, close relatives. And so they asked if I would do the funeral. And, and what I found out is, is I do funerals, particularly for un, unredeemed people, and I did this a lot when I was pastoring in Miami. I want to meet with the family first because I don't want to get up there and, and give the message I'm going to give and have that be a surprise to them, and they'll be angry and, and, and not comforted and very disturbed. And my desire as a, as a pastor at a funeral is to is to comfort the ones who are disturbed and disturb those who are comfortable. And so it's my desire to do that, but I don't want to do that as a surprise. And so I asked if I could meet with them bottom lunch, and so we sat there. And I gave them, the, and also it's my desire to give them the gospel privately so that in, in a controlled environment I can give the whole gospel and ask, ask any, answer any questions. And so I did that, and we were sitting having lunch at a sandwich shop, and I get all done giving the gospel. And I wrote down what he said because uh, it really came out very interesting. I all finished what I said. He said, oh, okay, f fine. Um, but I think a lot of people do good and create a lot of good karma. And my dad was one of those people. And I believe that God looked at him when he died and said, you're one of the good guys and took care of him. That, that was their response. That was his response. And the mom's like, you know, shaking her head in the affirmation. You know, after I got done giving the gospel, which is absolutely contrary to all of those statements, okay? So you understand as you bump into people, you understand as you witness to people, these are the responses that you're going to get because the gospel's foolishness to those who are perishing. And there's a way that seems right to a man, Proverbs says, but the end of thereof leads to death. And there are a lot of people like that. And perhaps as you witness, don't be discouraged. Some of the reasons why a lot of people don't come to the Bible or they won't come to church, they won't respond initially to Christians is because their own philosophy is so shaky anyway, they don't think it can stand another blow. So they'd just rather just fend you off and say, well, this is what I think, and then they move on in their own way. And of course, we know that their eyes are dark and they can't understand the gospel of Christ unless the Lord draws them, okay? But you can see that illustrated in your own life if you're an active witness. You're going to see this regularly, okay? And, and, you know, they just rather mask themselves, you know, put their head in the sand, be buried, and keep their eternal fingers crossed, hoping it's all going to work out okay. So, Jeremiah says it like this, Jeremiah 8 9. It says, the wise men are put to shame, they're dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do they have? And what's the rhetorical answer? None. None. Even though it seems foolish, even though the good news seems like the worst news of all, they don't have any wisdom, do they? Keep that as your encouragement because they can be pretty nasty about it. Or they can just flat out disregard everything you said that happened at that lunch a year ago. I didn't think of anything you said. No questions about that. Is I open it up and he just tells me what he thinks. It's opposite. So, understand this is, this is the wisdom of the world. It isn't wisdom at all. Now back to divisions and factions, which is Paul's topic here, okay? Personal preferences and opinions. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter and what they did and how they ran the church or whatever, whatever it was. So Paul's illustration here is this. Listen, man's wisdom is nothing. All that matters is building the church through the message of the cross. That's where the power is. It always comes back to that. God is set against worldly wisdom. He's set against worldly philosophy. Even the philosophy of Israel and Judah, he destroys it. So man's wisdom then is defined, James 3.13. I'd like you to look there. Would you do that? Hold your finger. Turn to James 3.13. Probably the, I think it's as defined here as well as anywhere, man's wisdom. And we can see it in the past, and we can see it practically today in the church in James. James 3.13. Hold your finger in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be right back there. But, uh, in fact, as soon as we get done with this illustration, we'll be back to uh, 1 Corinthians. James 3.13. And here James takes on the same thing. You're going to see the same language, okay? Who among you is wise and understanding? Now, that's speaking to believers now, Okay. So we're talking to believers, not talking to unbelievers, we're not talking about the foolish who've rejected the wisdom of God. Okay, who among you is wise and understanding? He's going to answer his own question. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and gentleness of wisdom. Verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Now mark this. Verse 15. This wisdom, the one he just named, okay, is not that which comes down from above but it's earthly, natural, demonic. Verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder and every evil thing. Verse 17, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. 
Verse 18, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So now we know in the church which wisdom is which, don't we? As long as there's disorder, as long as there's faction, as long as there's selfishness, jealousy, backbiting, all the things that go along with that, this is man's wisdom and it's from below, okay? Human wisdom is earthly and it never gets beyond the earth, in other words. It never really understands supernatural reality. It's earthly. And then verse 18 was very important. Look there just real briefly, okay? The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James says, you want to produce the fruit of righteousness? Live at peace. And what has Paul said numerous times? Over and over, right? Live at peace. And here, God was talking to Egypt. Here, uh, in just a minute, we're going to see uh, in Isaiah, God's talking to Egypt. But we see uh, in, the, in the present, God's talking to the church. Listen, divisions, factions, preferences expressed outwardly, obstinately drain the productivity of the church. Same issues over and over and over again. God doesn't need human wisdom. Human wisdom is from below. It never gets out of the earth, okay? Godly wisdom is from above, and it has its own symptoms, okay? Now, go ahead and turn back to 1 Corinthians 1.20. And he comes to some questions. Really, it's one uh, question with three parts. 1 Corinthians 1.20. He's talking about the same thing now. He's in the past. He's going to come right into the present with the church. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And here, for the first part of the question, Paul is quoting Isaiah 19.12. Where is the wise man? And he says, Egypt, you've had it. And he's talking to Egypt now. And he says, you've gone after false gods. You've worshipped false gods. You've denied my truth. You're going to be judged. And when that was all done, then Isaiah, the first part of the question, he answers it. He says, where are the wise men? Isaiah 19.11. He says, they're all stupid. Okay, all your wise men in Egypt are all stupid. God doesn't need your wisdom. God doesn't want your wisdom. You think that you have it, you don't have it. And the question really means, who's going to offer the solution to this destruction God's going to bring on Egypt? And God says, your wise men are not going to do it. They're going to be stupid, and you're not going to be able to handle this. The answer is no one. They can't do it. And then Paul quotes the next part from Isaiah 33, 18, for the next part of the question. And where's the scribe? And it had to do with the nations that opposed the end of Israel. Okay? And as you read through that section of Isaiah, you understand, and you, if you've read it, read it recently, you understand what I'm talking about. He just moves from nation to nation to a nation and asks these questions, and we know their context, so we understand what the answers are. And the scribes then, in these nations that wanted to destroy Israel, you know what they were supposed to do? They were supposed to write down everything that got taken from Israel after the siege. Okay? So the scribes were there, and we took X and X from the temple, and we took all this from the king's house, and, we took X, and they're just writing all these things down. He goes, where's the scribes? Everything taken in victory. That's what they're going to write down. This future fulfillment tells us they didn't take anything, and they won't ever take anything again, because it's a future fulfillment. Israel's never going to be conquered again, never going to live in fear in their own land. So there aren't any scribes, and so goes the wisdom of man. You were all ready to pillage Israel, and you're never going to get any of that stuff. Okay? So he tosses it out. And then the third part of the question. Look back at 1 Corinthians 1.20. Where's the debater of this age? And this part you know, doesn't look as if it had an Old Testament reference. The word, though, is used numerous places in the New Testament of those who caused trouble to the church where Paul was instrumental. And so Paul brings it right into the forefront. Okay? He takes two historical examples, and then he takes one that's a modern example. 2 Corinthians 12, 20, same root word we see here. For I'm afraid, Paul says, that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish, and I may be found by you to not be what you wish. In other words, Paul says, when I come, I may find you still in sin, still in faction, still in disagreement, still figuring out that if you know better than somebody else, and I may not be what you want, I may not be gentle, and I may not be uh, coming to you uh, in, a, in, a, in a kind way, I may be coming to you with a rod. Uh, Paul says, we might not find each other like we wish, that perhaps, Paul says, speaking of the church, there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, here it is, Disputes, there's the same word, okay? Where's the disputer of this age? Disputes, Paul says, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. See, those all go together. All the factions all have gossip, and all the factions all have disturbances, and slander, and all of those things are all connected to each other, okay? Paul sucks away the foundation of the church and the power of the church when those are there. Someone, and, and the, the base root word is just someone who questions everything. Where are those people? Where's the disputer? Where's the disputer here uh, when I come? It's somebody who just questions every single thing. Now, Galatians 5, 19, he uses the same reference uh, to fleshly behavior and then describes what that looks like. And like we saw in 1 Corinthians 6, and he says here, now, 
The deeds of the flesh are evident. What are they, Paul? Well, immorality, impurity, sensuality. Verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, mark this, disputes, dissensions, factions. Okay, those are carnal deeds. Those are deeds of the flesh. That's uh, earthly wisdom. That's the wisdom from down below. Okay? And slumped in with the biggest problems, isn't it? The most serious problem he's having with the church at Corinth, which is those who are creating problems. Those are who have dissension. Because it always comes back to individuals, doesn't it? There's always undercurrents in the church. Paul knows this. And it always comes back to people, individual people, who sow those things. So Paul says, where are all those people? Now you remember, that's not a very good, that's not a very good company to be in, is it? Where, where are the wise men? Uh, they're stupid. Where is the scribe? Uh, he's foolish because they're not going to take anything from Israel. Where are the debater of this age? Uh, has God not made the foolish, made foolish the wisdom of the world? So it's not good company, he says. Paul says in Philippians 2.14, we'll just illustrate it quickly. Do all things without grumbling. That's the word for quiet debating or behind the back talk. Okay, Do all things without that, he says. Or, and here's the word, disputing, questioning everything. Why, Paul, verse 15, that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Why? It's all about testimony, isn't it? It's all about testimony. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to. Regardless of the work that you may be doing or not doing, the fact that those things are there, it's all about testimony that undermines the power of the church and takes away the Holy Spirit's enabling for fruit to be produced. Do all things without grumbling, do all things without disputing, so that you'll prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom, testimony, you appear as lights in the world. Then mark this, this is the main thing, holding fast the word of life. What's the main thing? Not the disputes, not the grumbling, not the factions, not, right? Holding fast the word of life, so that in the day, in the day of Christ I'll have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Here's the thing. Paul says when it's all done, you made the main thing the main thing, and that will show that I didn't waste my time instructing you, okay? Paul says, look, don't be about earthly wisdom, James says. Don't be about things that are below. Don't be about things about the flesh, okay, which are all these things. Paul says, show, because you hold fast the main thing, the word of life, that you are, uh, that I have spent my time wisely instructing you. So to make clear then, the futility and the fatality of human wisdom in context where all disputes, where all factions are given rise, Paul sarcastically says, where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of the sage? The wisdom of the world cannot bring redemption to man. The main thing is the word of life. Hold it fast. That's the issue. The wisdom of man can't transform sinners. And so in his transition verses to illustrate the general futility of dissensions and factions, he says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of man stays on the surface. It never gets to the real issue. That's man's eternal soul. So God has swept away all that other stuff. The wisdom of man leaves men without the things they need most, starting with the knowledge of God, followed by peace and joy and forgiveness and freedom from guilt and meaning of life and eternal hope. So the implication is, beloved then, that factions, dissensions in the Corinthian church and in any church spring from the wisdom of man, which James says is earthly and carnal, and so Paul just takes the time to show the church how futile and how bankrupt human wisdom really is. You see, it just takes us back to the main topic. So he taps into it from the Old Testament. He moves into it from the New Testament. He just lumps them all together in one really bad group of company. And so God moves in to do what human wisdom could never do, and that takes us to verse 21, 1 Corinthians 1. Look there if you would. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Let's stop right there. So Paul moves his message to take in a little more territory. And so he says that the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. And man's wisdom by itself never had and never would have come to the knowledge of God. The wisdom of men isn't on that plane. Okay, The thoughts of man in his flesh are not God's thoughts. And that's the general reference then to the divisions, the problems that the church is having. And again, from Isaiah, we see the same thing, chapter 55, verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And then verse 21, same idea. For since the wisdom of God through the world and its wisdom did not come to know God. Now it was in God's wisdom 
Man's thoughts are never on the eternal plane. That's Paul's point. Even surrounded by the wisdom of God. So man exists then. Here's the idea. Surrounded by the wisdom of God in the midst of the wisdom of God and the world by wisdom. What? Knew not God. That's the bottom line for man's wisdom. That's the bottom line for human understanding. Surrounded by the wisdom of God, they knew not God. And here we're surrounded by God's wisdom and ignorant of it. That's always the inclination of man. Always the inclination of man. And that's really Romans 1, 19 and 20 all over again, isn't it? Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. Verse 24, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So here's man surrounded by the wisdom of God. Every time he looks at a mountain, every time he looks at his hand and he sees the wisdom of God, the stars, at the intricacies of nature, he sees God's wisdom. And he applies his own wisdom, rejects God's wisdom, and never knows God. And if you think about it, just think about it this week, okay? All right, the astronomer looks through his telescope and he sees a comet, but he doesn't see God. And he designs a spacecraft and he attaches a probe to it. In addition to that, with hundreds of millions more calculations, figures out how to catch up with a comet by traveling more than 10 years and 6.4 billion miles. It caught up with a comet traveling 86,000 miles an hour, 310 million miles from Earth. That's pretty impressive. They could predict all the movements and the gravitational pull because that's what they had to do to get up to speed to catch the comet. They could do all that because why? They were all constant, weren't they? And all designed by a designer who set it all in place so they could make the calculations and show up right where they thought they'd show up. And they do all that so they can, here's a quote, okay? This is right off the ESA website. Try to answer the very big questions about the history of our solar system. This is Matt Taylor, ESA Rosetta Stone project scientist, in an article on the ESA website. Quote, what were the conditions like in its infancy and how did it evolve and what role did comets play in this evolution? End quote. The natural scientist studies his biology and botany and whatever else and he comes up with evolution without a source. The scientist for ESA, there's a comet, we're going to catch up with it, we're going to bounce a probe on it, and we're going to start, you know, figuring out what it is. Of course, they land in the shadow of a cliff, and the battery's going to run out, and so it's going to be all done. You know, should have had energized the bunny batteries, and we would have been better. But the fact of the matter is it lands there, and so they want to answer the, the questions of the universe. Of course, they, they use calculations that were consistent in a universe that's consistent, and they show up there and say, okay, how did the universe evolve, and how did this comet play a part in that? You see? Surrounded by the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God, in man's wisdom, came to the opposite conclusion. See? Religion creates a God who is no God and bows to the no God. That's Romans 1, 19 and 20. It's like the Greeks, just sum it up. You know, Greek philosophy was centered on one great city, Athens, remember? The pinnacle of Athens was at the Areopagus, the great Mars Hill. Paul walks up to Mars Hill. All the Greek philosophers all gather around. They're all talking about everything. There's a great altar there, and he walks up to it. And uh, here's what it said, to the unknown God. Isn't that interesting? With everything they knew, the one thing they didn't know was the one thing that was the most obvious, the real God. And Paul says, I declare to you, this God is the real God above all gods. See, That's the wisdom of man, see? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Chapter 3, verse 18 says the same thing. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. You have to come, listen, beloved, mark it, to the level of the cross to be eternal. Okay? It's always that. It's never in the wisdom of man. It's never in dissensions. It's never in factions. All those things are based in the wisdom of men, and they're all earthly. Okay? Set it all aside, Paul says. Make the main thing the main thing. Come to the level of the cross. It's the main thing for the church. Okay? Look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. That really is a huge blow against the complexity of human wisdom, isn't it? God just did something so simple, and by the very simplest thing that God did, he accomplished what all of the philosophers and all the wise men of all the ages never could. God was well pleased. Yodokio. This means literally God took delight. It's aorist active indicative. Just continues to take delight in it. The message preached really is a noun that just refers to the message, not the act of giving it. It's a noun, okay? So it's a simple message, and, and Paul calls the church back to that message. It's not talking about 
that it's foolish to preach. He's saying that it's the foolishness of the message preached. So he's speaking particularly about the knowledge of God, see? That's the point. It was good enough to reveal the knowledge of God. It's good enough to stick with now. That's the whole point. Letting go of worldly wisdom that leads to dissension and fighting. The simple message of the cross, which is the foolishness, see? The foolishness. It isn't the idea that preaching is foolish, as we said. I mean, some preaching is foolish. I mean, if you turn on the Joyce Meyer channel, the Joel Osteen channel, you, you can agree that some preaching is foolish, okay? But that's not the point, okay, that Paul's trying to make here. Uh, the point is, is that foolishness of the gospel itself in the minds of those who hear it, that's the point, okay? Something so silly, something so low, something so uncomplicated, uh, some, something so distasteful to the Jew as a stumbling block, it's foolish, but it was, it was that foolish thing, that simple thing, Jesus dying on a cross, you don't have to be smart, you just have to do what? What does it say at the end of verse 21? Just have to what? Just have to believe, right? Does it say to save them that are intellectuals? Right? Does it say uh, God was well pleased with the foolishness of the message priest to save Jonathan Gruber, who's so much smarter than everybody else? And obviously comes on TV and tells us regularly over the last week. Is that what it says? To save them that are wise? Save them or what? To save them who would believe, right? To save those who would believe. In fact, and we may get to this next week. You know, it's just so simple. It doesn't matter how smart we are. We just need to believe. Faith appropriates what God has done. But 1 Corinthians one twenty-six. we'll read that for sure next time. It says, uh, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. People say, well, wouldn't it be great if this, such and such a person came to know Christ, you know? Wouldn't it be great if this, you know, this scientist who's agnostic or uh, atheist, wouldn't it be great if he came to know Christ because, man, he could just have such an audience, whatever. God says, no, no. It'd be great if he comes to faith because his own soul will be redeemed, delivered from the payment of hell. Paul says, just look around you, beloved. Look at your calling. Check the people around you. Most of us are just plain old common folk. And you know what? God did that purposely. He did that purposely, beloved, to stand as a rebuke for all time against human wisdom. A rebuke for all time against human wisdom. God never needed human wisdom in the past. God doesn't need human wisdom now. Human wisdom is the source of all faction, all disagreement, all trouble in the church. It's not the main thing. The cross is the main thing. The simpleness and simple message of the cross is the main thing. All man needs is the cross. All the church needs is the cross. Those that believe in the cross are saved and follow the biblical pattern of the church. Fervently serve, say the same thing, come to the same conclusion, be of the same mind, submit to the, the, pro, the, the pattern of leadership that God has set up. That's how it works. Human wisdom isn't it. That's all about the wisdom of God, which is foolishness to men. We have to stop there because we are out of time, but we'll pick up there next time, Lord willing. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. We have a few announcements and then a big announcement to get you on board with our, our uh, Christmas emphasis we have coming up. Robert Klein, if you're in here, be ready. Come on up, if you would, brother. Lord, we thank you today for opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for the clarity of it. We thank you for the simplicity of it, perhaps the humility that it uh, brings in our own mind about uh, where all factions, divisions, and, and difficulties arise. And as Paul takes in a whole bunch of real estate, we, under, we understand where he's coming from, uh, just basing all of that on human wisdom, things that are from below, as James said. And Lord, we don't want to be a part of that. Father, help us to follow what your word says. Help us to get back to the main thing as you have uh, instructed through your Holy Spirit, Paul, to tell the church at Corinth. The instruction still goes out to every church that calls on your name. Father, it's all about testimony first and, and of course, the power and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and what he desires to do amongst us. And Lord, we thank you. I thank you for Berean. I thank you for so many who uh, come under the, the authority and, and submit willingly and just give themselves away so often. We thank you, I thank you for the blessing, perhaps like no other church I've ever been a part of. And I'm so grateful for that. I pray that you'll continue to, Father, do your work here in that way. Thank you for the blessing that they are to our community, to the people here. Thank you for the discipleship that goes on, the replication of, of the, uh, the reprints of Christ that occur from children and, and little guys' ministry all the way up to adult ministry. Thank you for the outreaches that are coming up, Father, where we will give out the gospel, the simple message, and it will be looked at as foolishness unless you go before us. And so we ask you by your Holy Spirit to 
uh, quicken the hearts of those we'll witness to coming up in a couple weeks, that they may understand the message of hope, draw them to you, help us be faithful to give the message out. And Lord, as we go about our business over this next week and we interact with those we'll bump into, help us not to be afraid. We've been given all speech and all knowledge. Everything we need, we're equipped with to do the things you've asked us to do. And Father, I pray we'll just open our mouth, open their heart, open your word. Help us to be clear, count us worthy to witness, even worthy to take some ridicule. And then proclaim, by that being uh, proclaimed that we're yours. Father, those of us who are going through difficult times, who've lost loved ones, Father, I pray that you'll administer in your grace to them, fill up uh, those voids that obviously are there, encourage them. Uh, and as those loved ones are with you in heaven, even more so, and a uh, great encouragement that someday, perhaps in the not-too-distant future, uh, we'll be reunited with them forever. What a joy to think of that. For those who are having a hard time, in their own lives financially, perhaps, or, or uh, relationship-wise. Lord, I pray that your grace will rule. It's not five steps to a peaceful environment in the home. It's submissive to the Holy Spirit, being controlled by the Holy Spirit, and volitionally doing the things that are instructed of us from your word, putting aside what our own thoughts may be and being obedient to what you say to do, where healing can occur. For those who haven't come to faith in you yet, who sit here still in their sin, Bring great conviction on them, Father, we ask, <coughs> by whatever means necessary. Bring them to their knees before you, that they may, in the time we exist in grace, come to faith. For those who haven't followed in baptism, the first step of obedience, it's an opportunity for you also to respond. For all we've spoken to today and all the ways the Holy Spirit have ministered in your heart that I'm not aware of, indicate that on the response card. Give that to me before you leave, beloved so we can follow up and you can walk in a richness uh, that is in obedience to the word. You be praised today, Lord. We love you. We thank you for tonight. We'll be back in your word again. And Joshua, thank you for Pastor John and all that he will uh, bring to our hearts tonight and for all the ministries that will go on this week to our Lighthouse kids and to our own children and to the adults that are at Bible study. For all those things that are coming up, Lord, I pray that you a rich blessing on those who teach, protect them from sickness and encourage them in their lives as they prepare. We give you all honor and glory. We do this for the name of your Son. And it's for his sake we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.